Good morning. It's good to see you all. Happy Palm Sunday. If uh, you're new to this whole church thing, Palm Sunday is the day where we uh, celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry uh, into Jerusalem a week before uh, his death and resurrection. Or should we say, untriumphal entry as our humble king rode upon a donkey. Pretty amazing. Well, thanks honey. Um, As we near the end of this narrative section that we've been in in Matthew, um, let's remind ourselves of Matthew's main point uh, in the chapters that we've been studying most recently, chapters 8 and 9. That the main point that Matthew is making is to demonstrate Jesus' authority. We have already seen how Jesus uh, has the authority to heal, authority over the supernatural and natural realms, and and the authority to forgive sin. Now today, we'll see two more ways that Jesus demonstrates his authority. Over Jewish tradition and over death itself. So where we left off, Jesus, after calling Matthew to be one of his disciples, was invited to Matthew's home for a feast with other tax collectors and so-called sinners. So, now I've, I've been to some pretty awkward dinner parties before, uh, but I've never been to a dinner party this, quite this awkward, uh, where two separate groups of uninvited guests show up to criticize one of your guests. That's pretty awkward. And not to mention, uh, the dinner party is then interrupted again by a full-blown emergency situation. So uh, let's take a look at our text for today. Uh, I would ask you now uh, to open your Bibles to Matthew 9, starting at verse 14. And uh, if you would, uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, For the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment. I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. 
and they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that we can come to your word and see wondrous things in it, that we can dive deep, that there's no bottom to the rabbit hole of studying your word, that there is life and truth and beauty and goodness found in the words of Jesus. So now as we come before you, we ask now that you would be working, that your spirit would be moving among us, that you would uh, give us insight into what you have said, that you would uh, apply it to our hearts and that our lives would be changed by what Jesus has done and what he calls us now to do in our lives. We ask this in his name. Amen. Alrighty, folks. Let's dive deep. So, after Jesus' response to the Pharisees' question, he is questioned by some of the disciples of John the Baptist. John the Baptist. So they, they see him, this not just respected teacher, but the one whom their master called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's at a feast when they're fasting. It's pandemonium. But now this, this requires maybe some background information because that seems rather strange. So in the law of Moses, there was only one day a year that required fasting for everybody. That was once a year on the Day of Atonement. So other fasts were instituted on one-time special occasions by God or by the king, but not obligatory regular fasting. However, during the time of Israel's exile and in the time after the exile, along with the many thousands of traditions added to uh, Judaism by the rabbis and the scribes, which marked Pharisaical Judaism, further traditions related to fasting were also developed. So, for example, during the time of Jesus, the most zealous Jews would actually fast twice a week, on Monday and on Thursday. So, whether uh, this is the fast in particular that the disciples of John are referring to is irrelevant, because either way, they had at some point begun practicing some fasting traditions alongside the Pharisees. Not a good crowd to associate with, right? So, beside that, John had vehemently opposed the Pharisees. And John had told those who followed him to follow Jesus, the one whom his ministry had been about. And evidently, these disciples of John did not share the same humility of their master. While John was happy to decrease so that Jesus could increase, these disciples of John did not share that they decided to continue to follow the more ascetic or self-disciplined ways of John the Baptist, even after he was put into prison, which Matthew has already told us about in chapter 4, verse 12. 
So it seems that these disciples of John had not yet understood the most important part of John's message, to go follow Jesus. And even worse, we see them now come to Jesus with criticism. So Jesus explains to them, the reason that he said his disciples didn't fast was because it was a time of feasting, not fasting. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Jesus, the bridegroom, is with his wedding guests. The Messiah is here. It's not time to mourn. It's time to celebrate, people. Now, it is interesting that Jesus uses this image of the bridegroom here with the disciples of John specifically because John himself used this specific imagery to talk about Jesus. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 29, John the Baptist says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Here, John points to Jesus, the Messiah, as the bridegroom, and to himself as the best man, if you will, who rejoices for him. Likely, these disciples of John would have known this imagery. And so it was purposeful to his audience that Jesus pointed back to the same exact imagery that John used. So these disciples of John didn't understand that this was not a time of mourning, but a time of rejoicing. But Jesus does go on to say that the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and then they will fast. This is the first time Jesus makes reference to the time after his death and resurrection. And in that time, his disciples will fast. And that is the time that we find ourselves in today. However, this leads me to a different question. If Jesus' presence with us is a time of rejoicing, and his time away from us is a time of mourning, in what sense, then, do we mourn today? Well, we do not mourn in the sense that we are constantly sad or miserable, uh, don't want to be that, but we do mourn in the sense that we wait and long for the return of the bridegroom, right? When the bridegroom is present, there will be no need to long for his presence anymore. There will be no need to fast, but now as we wait for his joyous return, we fast as we long to celebrate with Jesus, our bridegroom. But again, these disciples of John do not understand what has changed now that the bridegroom is here and what will change when the bridegroom is taken away. And so Jesus must explain to them and to us what this new time of Messiah's presence means. So please look again at uh, verses 16 and 17. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins, 
If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed, but the new wine is put into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. Here we see Jesus uses two different images to make the same point. What is new cannot be added to the old. What is new cannot be added to the old. When a piece of unshrunk cloth is attached to an older shrunken garment, when it is washed again, it will shrink and tear. And similarly, when new wine expands as it ferments inside of a wineskin, if the wineskin is old and it's already been stretched, it's brittle and it will burst. So the new wine has to go into a new wineskin because it doesn't work any other way. There are many implications to this that we must discuss. You see, the time of the messianic bridegroom has begun, and we will and will bring in something new that cannot be contained in what is old. The time after the bridegroom is taken away, this time we are in now, cannot be forced into the old forms and old ways of Judaism. The Messiah's arrival ushers in a new time in which the old ways are replaced for the new. That is, the old covenant having been fulfilled, or from the time of this story yet to be fulfilled in Christ, gives way for the new covenant begun in Christ. And we, as the church, being in Christ, receive the blessings of the new covenant. The old covenant has done the purpose God intended for it. And so, as God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah, God has planned for something new to take its place. Something even better But see here that Jesus doesn't refer to the old ways just in the sense of being old in time. The word here translated as old also has the connotation of being used or worn out. The old garment or old wineskin of Judaism had become worn out and inflexible by centuries of extra-biblical traditions being heaped upon it. Their their messianic expectations, what they thought the Messiah would be like, were completely skewed. They misinterpreted and misapplied the Old Testament, and they superseded God's commands with man-made traditions. Jesus, his ministry, and his teaching did not fit within the traditions and the expectations of Pharisaical Judaism. It had to go. It had to go. Christ did not come to reform an old system. He did not come to reform an old system, but to introduce something new. Further still, in discussing the new ways, Jesus uses two different Greek words for the the word new. The first referring to newness of time, of what his presence is ushering in, but the second referring to the newness of its kind, 
that this new wine of the Messiah is a wine of a new kind, distinct from the old. This is in part what was so objectionable about the group known as the Judaizers. Do you remember them? Maybe you've read about them before. These guys represented the first major false teaching that the church had to combat. The Judaizers were Jewish Christians who believed that Gentile or non-Jewish Christians needed to become Jews and obey the law of Moses in order to be saved. Their teaching is addressed in Acts 15 uh, and in Paul's letter to the Galatians. But here we see Jesus, by this teaching, indirectly addresses their error. Their problem was that the Judaizers were trying to force the new wine into the old wineskins, which ends up ruining both of them. But for the zealous and pious Jew... Uh, listening to Jesus, this statement likely could have only been understood as a threat. Really? The old Jewish traditions are worn out and old? Who do you think you are? The one who has come to replace them. The one who has authority to usher in the time of new wine. The Jews ultimately could not accept the new wine of Jesus. They could not accept that a new age was dawning and that God was doing something bigger and better in the new time of new wine. They could not accept that Jesus had the authority over their traditions. And we must understand this as well. That just as Jesus had authority over the old ways of Jewish tradition, he has authority over our traditions as well. In this time of new wine, the Messiah still demonstrates his rule and authority. And our traditions must be subjected to his authority as we come under his rule. We do not want to be guilty of the same error of the Judaizers who thought that new wine could fit into old wineskins. Now, this, of course, does not mean all tradition is fundamentally bad, right? But how common and how easy is it for, for us to hold our traditions and our preferences, which that's really often what traditions are, preferences far too dear and important. And when this happens, they sadly and sinfully grow to be of greater importance than the commands of Jesus. Therefore, we must not forget that Jesus has authority also over our own traditions. And we must not forget how quickly this can happen. Yes, the Jewish traditions had over 400 years of developing done by the time Jesus was born. But after the exile, it did not take very long before the new traditions they had created became as important or even more important than what God had commanded. But on a personal and local level, this could happen 
so quickly, so quickly. Think about Trinity Fellowship. This is a young church. You're a year old, just toddling around. You're just getting started. And it, it's beautiful. It's amazing. But beware, beware that the excitement and adaptability that can exist more easily in the start of something new can very quickly give way to rigidness and formality. Mark my words. It will not be long before you hear somebody say, but that's how we've always done it. Even though that always has been like a few months, probably. So be on guard for this, brothers and sisters. Be on guard. As your church grows and as new members are added to your community, be careful. Do not allow preferences or traditions of how y'all might do something take precedence over obedience to the commands of God, putting what is foremost and more important first. Because you may miss out on something beautiful God could be doing in your midst. Think about it. The Messiah, the one whom they were all waiting for, was standing right in front of them. And they missed it. They missed it completely because they could not see past their tradition. That's what happens. This isn't like some, oh man, preferences. No. You could miss the boat big time. So from this interaction, we see that with the arrival of the messianic bridegroom. It is not a time of feast it is, it is a time of feasting and not a time of fasting. But with the bridegroom being taken away, we fast now as the church as we wait and long for our bridegroom's return. But in this time of new wine that Jesus the messianic bridegroom has ushered in, the old ways of the old covenant and of Jewish tradition are done away with. So now In this following story, we will see some of what the Messiah's time of new wine brings in and looks like. All right, so let's look back at our text. Let's look at verse uh, 18. While he was saying these things to, to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. So here we have the inciting action of a scene change. At this feast, after these two groups have come in uninvited and and criticized Jesus, this ruler arrives, and in humility, bows before Jesus, begging him, to restore his dead daughter to life. Now, some of you may actually recall this story more as it is told in Mark and Luke's Gospels. 
from their account of this story, we know that this man's name is Jairus, and he is a synagogue ruler. Now, it is interesting to point out that of the three versions of this story, Matthew's telling of it is by far the shortest. Matthew removes all of the details that he believed were extraneous or unessential to make the point that he desired to make. So now, uh, when we study the gospel narratives, this is maybe some Bible study tools for your Bible study tool belt. When we study the gospel narratives, there are two ways we can go about it, each having its own merits. Uh, One is called studying the gospels uh, in harmony, that is put together in chronological order. That means when you study a story like this one that takes place in multiple Gospels, you would read them together, studying how each author tells the story. And do not get me wrong, this is a really helpful and important way to study the life of Jesus. There are several very significant things we can learn from studying the Gospels in harmony that we likely wouldn't see any other way. It provides for us the fullest picture of the whole life and ministry of Jesus and helps us to better understand the programmatic nature of his ministry. However, that being said, there is a problem when we too quickly jump to look at how Mark and Luke tell this story. When we study the Gospels in harmony, what we are doing and what we need to be careful of is that we ultimately remove the story from its context. And if you have another tool on your Bible study tool belt, we might remember context is very important. Context is king. So when uh, we study the Gospels in context, we need to understand that a point is being made specific to the author. The points that each of them make are not opposed to one another, and they are likely similar and complementary but we have to study each gospel's telling of the story individually and in its context to understand each point that each author is making. So as we continue in our study of this story, let us now take note of what details are missing from Matthew's telling of the story and what details he deems significant enough to include. All right? Sounds good? Everyone tracking with me here? Great. Thank you for the nods. Appreciate that. All right. So at this point, Jesus and his disciples are following Jairus through the crowd to his home. Look at verse 20. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. I've always found this story so interesting. As we have one story of one miracle inside the story of another, a miracle story sandwich, if you will. So this woman enters the story and she has been suffering for 12 years, y'all, 12 years. 
I can't imagine doing like anything for 12 years, let alone bleeding constantly. So she has a, a chronic hemorrhage of some kind. Now, it, it's likely that this bleeding was in some way related to her womb, but not necessarily. And either way, the fact of her bleeding is incredibly significant. Because the fact that she is bleeding means that she has been ceremonially unclean for 12 years. Now, this also requires some explanation. In the law of Moses, there were many laws given by God related to uncleanness. It was important for God's people to be in a state of cleanness in order to approach God in worship. So one state of being clean or unclean is not necessarily connected to sin. It is most commonly related to a circumstance of some kind. Uh, Like when someone touches a dead body or when someone has an illness or a skin disease or when someone has a bodily discharge of of various kinds. And we learn about these laws and the ones specifically pertaining to this woman's situation in Leviticus 15. So I would actually appreciate if y'all could turn there in your Bibles with me to Leviticus chapter 15. So I'll wait. It's in the front of your Bible, a few books in. Man, two sermons in a row with y'all who are reading Leviticus. Oh, yeah. We are so blessed. Getting some Leviticus action going. Let's get excited. <laughs> All right, so we're at Leviticus 15. Start at, we're starting at verse 25, okay? So, if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness, as in the days of her impurity she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of her impurity, and everything on which she sit, sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall continue for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. Now, (laughs) I know some of y'all are probably like, what the heck did this guy just read? This is in the Bible? Yes, it's in the Bible. And so we need to understand it. Now, Let me say again, to make clear that these issues of ritual uncleanness are not sin issues. A woman's menstrual cycle is not a sin. Please do not misunderstand that. And she is not in a state of sin when she is in her menstrual cycle. This is about God's rules for how one can come to before him in worship. And this isn't just a female topic either, because there are different rules for different kinds of discharges for both men and women in this chapter and others. So let's look again. I want to skip down to verse 31, all right? Okay. 
Thus, you shall keep the people of Israel separate from uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. This verse is actually making a larger point from the uh, even larger section of Leviticus. This is chapters 11 through 15 of Leviticus make up all of the laws pertaining to cleanliness. And the book of Leviticus as a whole answers this question. How can an unholy people dwell before a holy God? So if you're ever doing a Bible reading plan and you get to the killer of all Bible yearly reading plans, Leviticus, and you're like, I have no idea what this book is about. It's about how can an unholy people live and worship a holy God? That's the whole point of the book. So God, having standards by which an unholy people can approach him in worship, gave rules for what makes one unclean. Those who were ritually unclean could not come to the tabernacle, could not come to the temple because they could not be in the presence of God and were sent outside the community of the people of Israel. They were cut off until they could be made clean again. But again, even though this is not an issue of like direct sins committed, it had major ramifications for how people lived their lives in community. Jewish women had a lot of things that they had to do during a month to, in order to remain clean in their normal lives. There were entire aspects of life that we don't think about, of course, because we do not have to follow these commands. We do, we do not follow these commands. But it has major ramifications for just everyday life. When someone was in an unclean state, the, once again, it did not mean they were sinning, but they could not approach God nor live normally in community of his people. And even the Pharisees believed this, folks. They, they believed that being unclean was not an issue of sin. But here's the problem with the Pharisees, among many things. What they did believe, wrongly, was that when someone suffered under a circumstance of constant uncleanness, like a leper, for example, or this bleeding woman, they believed that it was because of sin that this was happening to them. Sorry guys, wrong again, but if that is what they believed, wow, the pressure and sorrow this woman must have endured. Her entire condition is just incredibly sad. Not only had she been suffering from this hemorrhage for 12 years, which is bad enough as it is, she had also been in a constant state of ceremonial uncleanness the entire time. Her whole life, her whole life was dictated by this circumstance. The things she touched became unclean. If she touched anyone else, they became unclean. Can you imagine what that would have done to her 
She was isolated, functionally a pariah, as she could not exist normally in Jewish community. She probably didn't have any community. She was an outcast in a constant unclean state. And to top it all off, her state of uncleanness separated her from the worship of Yahweh, her God. She could not come before God in worship because of this. She could not go to the temple. She could not offer sacrifices. She could not celebrate the feasts with her family. This woman had suffered tremendously. And you can sense her desperation. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to himself, herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. This raises another significant question. Why did she think that touching his garment would make her well? Why that? Now, we cannot get inside this woman's head, and I'm not suggesting we try. We can't figure out all she was thinking. I think the only thing we can say with certainty is that she believed that Jesus could heal her. That's what she believed. But by examining the details in context, it can lead us to make some helpful observations here. First, this woman does not approach Jesus and ask for healing like others had done. She desires to stay in the midst of this dense crowd. She wants to remain in obscurity, a state that she had probably been in for a very long time. She also felt unable to approach Jesus because she likely did not want him to touch her and so make him unclean as well. She was an outcast, unable to approach God, And in her shame and desperation, what does she do? She simply touches Jesus' outer garment. Now, this garment is of particular importance. The phrase, the fringe of his garment, actually refers to something specific. This fringe was a tassel on Jesus' outer garment that all Jewish men were required by the law of Moses to wear. Let's turn somewhere else. We're going to do a little Bible hopscotch today, I guess. Numbers 15. Could you all turn there? Sorry, I thought I had said it. (laughs) I was like, you all aren't turning your pages. I didn't say it. (laughs) Numbers 15. This is uh, where we read about that instruction from the Lord. This is number 15, starting at verse 37 to 41. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be, and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So all Jewish men were required by the law 
to have these tassels on their garments so that the purpose of them is to look upon them and be reminded of God's commandments. Jews today still do this, folks. The Orthodox even have them attached to special shirts that they wear under their jackets. So, as the perfect and obedient Jew that Jesus is, he would have worn one of these. This is, in Hebrew, known as a talit. And you can see on the corners are these tassels. All four corners have these tassels, right? These tassels actually also have a name. So that this is the talit, or better known as a prayer shawl. And these tassels are called tzitzit. And this, this is what, you know, you're supposed to wear it around your shoulders, kind of like this. And they hang down at the end. They're pretty long. They're noticeable, and they're meant to be noticeable. Because when you look at them, they're supposed, you're supposed to see them and be reminded of God's commandments. That's what they're for. And so, Jewish men would wear them. Now, Jewish men will wear them in uh, the synagogues today, but Jesus would have, and others would have worn them all the time, draped around their shoulders, or when they're praying over their heads like this. But, these were supposed to be a sign of one's obedience to the law. This tassel, symbolized a Jewish man's obedience to the law. And this is what the woman reaches out to grab, to be healed. It's very interesting. So if you want to take a look at it later, afterwards, you're more than welcome to. I'm happy to show show you and tell you more about it. So that is what she grabs, the tzitzit on Jesus' talit or prayer shawl. And whether this was intentional in the mind of this woman or not, it was God's providence that it did happen in this way and is recorded for us to see its significance. This bleeding woman, unclean before God, was healed by touching the specific piece of Jesus' clothing that symbolize his obedience to the law of God. And she is healed instantly. We must learn from this, for it is Jesus' perfect obedience to God's law that we too are made clean. When Jesus touches the unclean, instead of he himself becoming unclean, they become clean. And so do we. In this time of new wine that Jesus has begun, the unclean are made clean. And what is the result of this, brothers and sisters? This woman is now able to re-enter community, the community of God's people, She is no longer an outcast, right? Her turmoil and isolation has ended. And by the power and authority of Jesus, she is brought back into community. In our salvation, 
We are as well. We are brought into the community of the people of God, though we were once isolated. And even greater than this, like this woman, we are made clean in order to now be able to worship in the presence of a holy God. Jesus cleanses us, and now we who were unable to approach God can come into his presence in prayer and worship and live in God-glorifying community with one another. This is what the Messiah has come to do in this time of new wine. And so despite her best efforts to remain anonymous, Jesus turns to her and says, Take heart, my daughter. Your faith has made you well. Here Jesus dignifies this woman who has suffered indignity for so long. But by what he says, he actually clarifies and maybe even corrects her theology. It is not her action of specifically touching the seat seats, the tassels, that has healed her. It wasn't that they were special, magical forces, and she grabbed them and that would heal her. No. Jesus clarifies for her and for us that it was not just that action that she might have viewed as sacred. It was her faith in him. It was her faith in him to be able to heal her that made her well. And it is by our faith in Christ that makes us well with God also. Now there is one more point of observation before we move on in our story. Here, the word uh, in verses 21 and 22 that is translated as made well is the Greek word sozo. This word is also uh, always almost translated elsewhere as to save or to deliver. The normal and expected word associated with healing is the Greek word therapuo. It's not used here. Now, even though the word sozo more often means to save, this does not specifically refer to our eternal eternal salvation. In context, it depends on the kind of circumstance that one is saved from. That being said, Matthew's use of this unexpected word is intentional and is meant to signal something to the reader. And I will suggest to you that it is meant to signal that Jesus has saved this woman in the sense that he has preserved her life. Jesus has saved her from death. And this would then link the story thematically with what is to follow. Jesus is about to enter the home of a girl who has just died. But even before that, by saving this woman of her hemorrhage, he demonstrates his authority over death here as well. And this is the major point Matthew is making in verses 18 through 26, that Jesus, as the Messiah, has authority even over death. But there is still more to build before we get to the climactic resurrection in this story. So let's look again at verses 
23 and 24. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. So when Jesus arrives at Jairus' house, there is another crowd of people waiting for him. Matthew describes this crowd as a commotion, as people were grieving with loud cries and wailing. Now, we uh, in North America do not think of funerals like this. Uh, Funerals for us are hushed, silent, solemn. Everyone's very quiet, trying to stay quiet. Even if you are crying, you're crying as quietly as possible. But in Jewish culture, this was not so. It was a loud occasion. In fact, people were hired as professional mourners, which in our culture, that kind of sounds pretty wild. But it was very common. And in fact, uh, Matthew mentions also these flute players. And by the traditions of the scribes at this time, even the poorest Jews were obligated to hire at least two flute players and one professional mourner. Yeah, when, when you're planning a funeral, you're not like, all right, we got the flowers, we got the wake, let's get the flute players and the professional mourner. That's not on the list of things that are in our culture. But here it is. This is an expected situation. But it is an intense situation. It's not quiet, it's loud. It is really intense. And this isn't just some poor Jewish man. Can you imagine the crowd of people this synagogue ruler would have been able to muster together? Jesus was walking into a cacophony of grief and despair. Man, now do you recall what I had said earlier about studying the Gospels? We can study them in harmony, looking at all the Gospels together, or individually, seeing what each author was arguing specifically. Today, we want to see what specific things Matthew wants for us to understand. So here is the unique thing about Matthew's telling of this story. Mark and Luke do not mention the flute players. Matthew's telling of the story is so much shorter and with so much less detail than Mark and Luke. Why on earth is the only extra added detail about the lousy flautists? I mean, come on! There has to be an intentional picture that Matthew is painting for us. So here's the thing about flautists. In Jewish customs, flute players were hired for two kinds of occasions. Funerals and feasts. So Jesus, the messianic bridegroom, walks into the scene of despair. Funeral dirges playing to accompany the sadness. And he enters and reverses the trajectory of the whole scene 
Oh, no, no, it's not time for funeral dirges. Pipe up the band. It's time to change the tune here. She's not dead. She's asleep. Oh, you think that's funny? Wait till she comes walking out the door. Then you'll be laughing. Jesus walks in the house, takes this girl by the hand, and she is alive. And the whole situation, the attitude, tone, symbolism, and mood completely shift on a dime. This is what the Messiah has come to do. In the time of new wine, the dead are raised to life, for the king has come, and he has the power and authority, indeed over death itself. The sound of funeral dirges becomes the music of a feast, but not just any feast, not just any feast, folks, the wedding feast of the Messiah who has come to bring in a new time of restoration and resurrection. For if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, this is what has happened to you as well. We who were once dead in our trespasses and sins have been made alive together with Christ. We have been restored to life, not by our undoing, but by the touch of Jesus who grabbed us out of our pit of despair and raised us to new life. D.A. Hagner said it this way, what Jesus did for this dead girl, he has done for all in the church who have experienced new life. There is too, beyond this, beyond this life, the church's confidence that Jesus will literally raise the dead. And indeed there is. As we still wait in the time of new wine, we long for our bridegroom's return. And at the return of Jesus, we who have already been given or have been spiritually resurrected will enter the glory of the final resurrection where we are given new bodies to enjoy forever with our bridegroom. That is our hope. That day, our Messiah will once again demonstrate his authority over death when he tosses death into the lake of fire never to be seen again. This, this is what Jesus has come and will come again to accomplish. He came to bring in this, the time of new wine in which a single touch, the clean are made clean. And even by touching Jairus' daughter by the hand, the same point is reinforced as touching a corpse would have also made you unclean. But instead of making him unclean when Jesus touches her hand, she is restored to life. So in making the unclean clean, they are brought not only into restored community with the people of God, but also are able to come into the presence of God and worship him. And in this time of new wine, the dead are raised to life. And now, now, as we wait for the bridegroom's return, We wait for him to come and finally put death to death. Then, all funeral dirges will be heard no more as they will be replaced forever by the joyful sounds of a wedding band. Lord, we thank you that we have this hope, that we have this promise of resurrection, that as we mourn now, as we see death now, as we are 
just so torn up inside by the brokenness and uncleanness and sorrows in this world, Lord. We know that you are the one who will come to restore all things, to make right, to make new this creation and our lives, that we now wait as we have experienced this uh, spiritual resurrection that you have brought us from death to life, brought us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, that we long for your coming where we will be given eternal spiritual bodies to live with you forever, Lord, and where funeral dirges are heard no more, and instead we have a feast with you forever and in glory. Lord, we love you. Thank you that we have this joy. We have this hope in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Please stand. Nothing. 
The charge is this, brothers and sisters. In his response to John's disciples, Jesus makes clear his authority over Jewish tradition. The Messiah has arrived, and so the old ways must be replaced to usher in the new. Jesus' death and resurrection has begun the time of new wine in which we wait for the bridegroom's joyous return. And in his ministry, Jesus demonstrates his power and authority that in this time of new wine, the unclean are cleansed and the dead are raised to life. So like these two women, we too are made clean and given new life by faith in the Messiah. In the time of new wine, the isolated are brought into community and the sound of funeral dirges become melodies of a wedding feast. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Amen. Go in peace.